True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The two women could not be more different. The stark difference in their appearance, lifestyles, jobs and locations mean there should never have been anything that could have connected them. But 14 years and one man would change that. When jealousy bubbles up within a cold heart, a serial murderer is born. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 96, The Serial Crimes of Robin Clutter. This episode covers a case of serial murder, and the episode is sponsored by CBS Justice. This month, watch brand new episodes of the CBS Justice original true crime series, Descent of a Serial Killer, on DSTV 170, every Sunday at 7pm. Presented by former FBI agent and renowned criminologist Dr. Brianna Fox, each week, She examines a killer's path from their childhood or teens, exploring when worrying traits first became noticeable, the gradual pushing of boundaries, and the disintegration of personal morality. Don't miss Descent of a Serial Killer, weekly from the 6th of November on CBS Justice. And a huge thank you to CBS Justice, home to expert-led true crime on television, for sponsoring this episode of the True Crime South Africa podcast. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Eileen McNabb, Philip Dupreer, Jackie Wormuth, Wes, and Yaku Nordia for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. As you all know by now, my first book, Samurai Sword Murder, is out in bookshops now. It's also available for purchase on Amazon, and the audiobook will be out soon too. If you're based in Pretoria, I'm going to be at Exclusive Books Brooklyn Mall on the 19th of November at 4pm. I'm going to be in conversation with Dr. Gerard Labaskachny, and we'll be discussing the Samurai Sword Murder and all things true crime. I'd love to see you there, and it is on a Saturday, so you can make an outing of it and not have to worry about timing and rushing about. Please RSVP to events at exclusivebooks.co.za to reserve your seats. Today's case is a series of murders, although the perpetrator's defense attorney would fiercely object to this label in court, because he doesn't fit the popular idea of what a serial murderer is, or how they behave. One of the main reasons for that is because this case combines two of the most well-known types of crimes, serial murder and intimate partner murder. Essentially, this offender is a serial intimate partner murderer, although if you believe him, It was all just a series of unfortunate events. 
My sources for today's episode include several academic papers and the judgments from two court cases against the defendant. So let's get into episode 96, The Serial Crimes of Robin Clutter. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Robin Clutter grew up in a very large family in Concordia in the Northern Cape. With eight siblings, Robin's parents' attention was widely split, and for the most part, the older siblings helped to raise the younger ones. Robin was just four years old when his father passed away in 1971. He would later note that this period in his life had had a major impact on his mental health, despite having so many siblings and not really having had a super close relationship with his father. The mere fact that he was fatherless and now the child of a single mother in the very traditional 70s had a deep impact on his psyche. Despite this difficult early childhood, Robin did very well in school. He achieved well academically and enjoyed his school career. When he was in grade 11, he met someone who would become an integral part of his future. Marilyn Jones was, like Robin, an excellent student, and the young pair soon became enamoured with each other. In 1987, both Marilyn and Robin achieved the highest accolade in their school careers when they were made head girl and head boy, respectively. The young lovebirds continued to see one another, but in their matric year, local unrest would force them apart for a while. In 1987, there were violent political protests in the Concordia area. Marilyn's family was able to continue getting her to school safely each day, but Robin's mom did not have the resources to do so, and he was forced to leave school before completing matric. Marilyn was able to continue on and passed. The following year, she moved to Cape Town to study, and Robin followed her. He would claim that she'd asked him to move with her, but we don't know whether that is true. Either way, the couple's relationship seemed to continue on, and by 1989, Robin had proposed marriage to Marilyn, and she accepted. Despite this seemingly picture-perfect young romantic beginning, it soon becomes clear that Robin and Marilyn's relationship is not healthy. Just a few months after they first became engaged, Marilyn had a change of heart and gave Robin his ring back. In March 1989, shortly after the breakup, Robin attempted to take his life by taking an overdose of tablets. He was rushed to Tigerberg Hospital, where his stomach was pumped, and he survived. When he was discharged, he moved to Kimberley to work at De Beers, but he couldn't seem to get Marilyn out of his head and continued to phone her, begging her to give him another chance. Marilyn, though, was not interested in a reconciliation. In 1990, though, Robin went on a holiday to Cape Town and reconnected with Marilyn. In 
the couple got back together. At this point, Marilyn was a part-time university student, and she was also working for the university. Later that year, they became engaged again. When we look back at this on-again, off-again cycle with the benefit of hindsight and in the context of why I'm telling you this story, it seems safe to say that this relationship was, at minimum, certainly not healthy and very possibly already abusive to some extent. Robin's refusal to accept Marilyn's decision that she no longer wanted to be with him and his continuous pushing to get back together with her, despite her saying she didn't want to, in my opinion, indicates his complete disregard for her boundaries. And I think this is a myth that popular romance culture perpetuates, that if a relationship ends because the other person has decided they no longer want to be in the relationship, that the romantic thing to do is to keep trying and pushing until the other person realizes they actually want you. But really, that's just a form of emotional abuse. Because if that person wanted you, they would be with you. And by refusing to accept and acknowledge their boundaries, you aren't helping them realize anything. You're just wearing them down until they agree because it's easier than having you continually harass them. And it seems clear, at least in hindsight, that this is what was happening with Robin and Marilyn. Although they were now engaged again, Robin was still working in Kimberley and wanted to make more money for his future marriage to Marilyn, so he decided to move back to Concordia. He and Marilyn spoke over the phone and visited one another, but their tumultuous relationship continued to ebb and flow, and in 1992 they split up again. They would be separated for four weeks on this occasion, but while they were split up, Robin met another woman in Concordia. He had a brief relationship with this woman, and she fell pregnant. She decided not to tell Robin about the child, perhaps not wanting to be tied to the man, and he would only find out sometime later after the child had been born. A month after they'd broken up on this occasion, Robin called Marilyn and convinced her to give him another chance. He moved back to Cape Town and found a good job at a packaging company. This seems to have been the most stable period in the pair's relationship, but it would not last. In December 1992, Robin's mother unexpectedly passed away. He was devastated, and he and Marilyn spent Christmas and New Year with his family in Concordia. During that time, his siblings would say that the couple had seemed happy, and they spoke about getting married in April 1993. Early in February 1993, gossip began to spread through Concordia that Robin had fathered a child in the community. This got back to Robin, and he realized that it was entirely possible the child was his. He told Marilyn because he was concerned she would hear about it from someone else. She immediately broke up with him, and it seemed that this had been the last straw for Marilyn, and in the weeks that followed, Robin would become increasingly desperate. 
Rather than solely bothering Marilyn by phone, he started following her around and knocking on the doors of her friends' houses when she was visiting them. On one occasion, he forced his way through an open window when the friend refused to open the door for him and only left when he was threatened with the police being called. As Robin's state of mind continued to unravel, Marilyn became increasingly irritated by his persistence and afraid of what he might do next. She moved to her uncle's house, hoping that Robin wouldn't find her there, but it wasn't long until he was knocking on her uncle's door too. One afternoon, her uncle felt sorry for him and let him into the house, despite Marilyn instructing him not to. Marilyn was home and the pair got into a heated argument. Robin left the house and drove to a supermarket where he bought a knife. He slit his wrists in his car and then drove back to show Marilyn what he'd done. If he hoped to extract some sympathy from Marilyn, he would be disappointed. The young woman had clearly had enough and did not have the emotional capacity to deal with her ex-fiancé's manipulative efforts anymore. She shoved a bunch of tissues in his hands to stop the bleeding on his wrists and called his brother to collect him. Robin's brother had taken him to a doctor and he was advised that he should consider taking medication for depression to help him recover. Robin said he might try it. From this point, though, Robin's behaviour only continued to further unravel. He struggled to sleep, and even when his brother gave him sleeping tablets, they had little effect on him. He continued to try and reach Marilyn by phone, but couldn't get hold of her. Robin was working night shift at this time, and when he should be sleeping, he was instead drinking at friends' houses. On the 5th of April 1993, he was at a friend's house drinking from 7am after his shift ended. He and his friend shared four 750 milliliter bottles of beer between them within an hour between 7am and 8am. Around 8am, Robin left his friend's house. He describes his condition at that time as half drunk. Robin drove to a shop and purchased cigarettes. He tried to phone Marilyn from a public phone at the store. She answered her work phone and he asked if he could see her after work. She put the phone down in his ear. When he arrived at his brother's house, his brother was washing his car. Robin went into his brother's bedroom. He claims that he was looking for sleeping tablets, but instead he stumbled upon his brother's police service pistol. After finding the gun, Robin decided that he was going to go to Marilyn's place of work. Later, police investigators would believe that Robin had intended to go to Marilyn's place of work from the moment he put down the phone in the store. They believed that he had not stumbled upon the gun, but rather that he had waited for his brother to be distracted and then gone to find the gun before heading out to the university. Robin would claim that he'd had no idea how the gun even worked and that he didn't know whether it was loaded or not. He said he'd only taken it with because he realised he may not be granted entry into Marilyn's office 
and he wanted to be able to scare people into letting him in. Robin left his brother's house at 9am and drove to the liquor store. He purchased six beers and sat drinking two of them in the parking lot. He then headed toward the university where Marilyn worked. When he arrived, he didn't immediately go inside. He first went into a student area and hung around there for a while. He claimed he was looking for a friend who went to university there, but didn't find the man. Then he went back to the car and retrieved the gun, and entered the office building that Marilyn worked in. No one stopped him or asked him why he was there, and he walked straight to Marilyn's office and knocked on the closed door and entered. Marilyn was sitting at her desk. She looked up, shocked to see Robin standing there, and demanded to know what he was doing in her office. For the most part, we only have Robin's version of what happened next. He claimed that he told Marilyn he was there to discuss their relationship, and that she'd suddenly started to insult and swear at him. Marilyn's colleague, who was in the office next door, first realized something was wrong when he heard raised voices in Marilyn's office. The man went to the door and opened it. He saw Robin standing with a gun pointed at Marilyn, who was kneeling on the floor in front of him, begging for him not to shoot her. Robin heard the door open and swung around, pointing the gun at the colleague and telling him that if he didn't get out, he was going to shoot him. In the moments that followed, several of Marilyn's other colleagues would look through windows and see what was happening, and many calls were made to campus security. Before security could arrive, though, seven shots rang out in the offices. Robin had fired seven bullets into Marilyn Jones as she kneeled before him. Her body would eventually be found underneath her desk, where she seemed to have dragged herself in a futile attempt to take cover. Although almost all of the shots could have been fatal, it was the last two that had most certainly ended her life. After shooting Marilyn, Robin opened her office door and walked out into the corridor. Campus security was on scene and shouted at him to put down the gun. Robin lifted the firearm and shot in the general direction of the voice he could hear, but didn't hit anyone. He then dropped the gun and put his hands in the air and was arrested by a security guard. As the handcuffs were snapped around his wrists, Robin told the guard, I've killed her and I'm satisfied now. Robin Clitter would be charged with the murder of Marilyn Jones, the attempted murder of two of her colleagues, and several different weapons charges. He pleaded guilty to the weapons charges, but not guilty to the murder and attempted murder charges. His reason for pleading guilty was that he claimed he'd been in a dissociated state during the crime and had acted in an automated state. Robin's defense was that the stress he'd been under in the weeks before the crime as a result of the issues between him and Marilyn had boiled over. He further claimed that when Marilyn had started swearing at him and insulting him, something he says she'd never done before, he disassociated 
and could barely remember anything about that time. This defence would be rejected by the judge because there were simply far too many instances of Robin's behaviour on that day that showed that he was completely in control and knew exactly what he was doing. This case did occur before minimum sentencing legislation was in place, and almost every case I look at from this period in time seems seriously lacking in severity of sentence. Today, Robin Clitter would most likely have been given a life sentence for this crime. In 1993, he was given just 15 years in prison. So, end of story, right? Horrible, selfish crime. Perpetrator goes to jail. Case closed. Well, no. You'll note there's still a significant amount of time left in this episode. And of course, I told you in the beginning that this was a serial offender. Robin Clitter would end up serving 12 years of his 15-year sentence in prison. He was released in 2005, and within days of his release, he met Shannon Vipinar. Robin had been drinking heavily before he went into prison, and when he was released, he fell straight back into his drinking habit. This was also something that he bonded with his new love Shannon over as she also enjoyed a drink. Right from the beginning, though, the relationship was turbulent and physically violent. Although Shannon's family quickly told her that they didn't think Robin was a great match, if she'd considered moving on, she would find that very difficult to do when she discovered she'd fallen pregnant with Robin's child. It is unclear from the evidence available whether Shannon was aware of Robin's past. It's very likely that she did know, but also probable that Robin had painted the incident very differently from the reality. Robin and Shannon's daughter was born in December 2005. The pregnancy had been fraught with tension and the violence had not subsided. Shannon had found it difficult to stop drinking completely while she was pregnant, and Robin was very angry about this. The irony is that firstly, he was still drinking heavily too, but also that he claimed he wanted the best for his baby, but he simultaneously had no problem assaulting Shannon while she was pregnant with that very same baby. Even after their daughter was born, Robin constantly clashed with Shannon about how he felt she should be mothering their child. He would later say that his relationship with Shannon's family was almost non-existent. He'd started running a small shop out of the garage of the home they lived in, and sometimes he would do well and be able to help his in-laws, and then they seemed to treat him differently than they did if his shop wasn't doing well and he had nothing to give, he said. Robin's brother had noticed that he'd started to behave in a similar obsessive way as he had when he was with Marilyn, and he was concerned. The cycle of violence and toxicity would continue on for almost the next two years. Perhaps due to the child they had together, Robin and Shannon didn't seem to split up and get back together the same way he'd done with Marilyn. And perhaps this also comes down to the differences between Shannon and Marilyn. 
The two women come from very different backgrounds. Marilyn had a supportive and resourced family. She did not have any substance use issues, and she was employed. And of course, she didn't have a child with Robin. I think this made all the difference when it came to her feeling that she could leave him. But the coercive control elements saw her continuously being pulled back in by him. Shannon, on the other hand, was not nearly as resourced as Marilyn. Her substance use disorder made her extremely vulnerable. But despite this difference between the two women, the very nature of intimate partner violence meant that the end result in both relationships would be the same. On the 5th of August 2007, Robin and Shannon had gone out for the evening. They returned home around 3am and began to argue. Robin assaulted Shannon so severely that she fled the house for the first time. Her family members took photographs of her injuries and a case was opened against Robin. This was the first time Shannon had taken significant action to protect herself from Robin, and although it's not clear whether a protection order was issued to prevent Robin from contacting Shannon, he clearly soon began to unravel in the same way he had when Marilyn Jones had put her foot down and made her final breakaway attempt. On the 25th of August 2007, Robin arrived at Shannon's mother Agatha's house. He wanted to see Shannon and his daughter, but he was turned away. He went home, drank three glasses of brandy, and took a steak knife from his home, which he put in his jacket. He returned to Agatha's home at 10.30am and managed to get into the house. At this point, he seems to have turned his anger on Agatha, who was doing everything she could to prevent him from staying in the home. He began chasing the older woman around the kitchen. Shannon fled into the lounge and he followed her, he assaulted her by pushing her into a chest of drawers and knocking her to the ground. Shannon and Agatha fled the house and went to a neighbor's home. The neighbor knew about the issues Shannon had been having with Robin and locked the doors and closed the windows. She told Shannon to hide in the bathroom. Robin followed the two women to the neighbor's house and started to kick the kitchen door in. He demanded to know where Shannon was and when Agatha refused to tell him, he kicked her in the stomach, and she fell to the floor. At this point, the neighbor fled her own home and went to the house next door. She hovered at that house's door, watching her own home, to see what was happening. She could see into her kitchen, and watched as Robin got down on the ground and began to make some hand movements over Agatha. The neighbor couldn't see exactly what was happening, but just moments later, she saw Robin leave the kitchen and Agatha staggered outside. Her face and body were covered in blood. She asked for help before collapsing, saying that Robin had stabbed her. Hearing her mother's screaming, Shannon came out of her hiding place in the bathroom. Robin attacked her, stabbing her three times. The courageous woman ripped herself out of his grip and ran out onto the street where she flagged down a taxi. The horrified taxi driver watched as the bloodied woman collapsed onto a seat 
and begged him to drive as a man was after her. The driver sped away, leaving Robin standing on the pavement with a bloodied knife in his hand. The taxi driver drove Shannon to the closest doctor's rooms, but she'd clearly used the last bits of adrenaline rushing through her to escape, and by the time he pulled up to the doctor's rooms, she was already unconscious. The man carried her inside, and although the doctor attended to her immediately, Shannon had already lost too much blood, and she passed away in the doctor's rooms. After Shannon fled, Robin returned to Agatha's house where he blockaded the door and started to completely destroy the contents of the home, throwing items around and smashing them. Police arrived, and it would take a few hours before they were eventually able to get Robin to come out, and he was arrested. Paramedics were called in an attempt to save Agatha's life, but she too had lost too much blood and passed away at the scene. As this case was being investigated in preparation for trial, one thing became clear to the prosecutor. It would be vital to present Robin Clutter to the judge as what he was, a serial murderer, in order to ensure that this time he was put away for as long as possible. There seemed to be little doubt that Robin had learned nothing from his first crime, his emotional and personality issues that had led to the murder of Marilyn Jones had not been addressed, and he was clearly incapable of engaging in healthy relationships with women without being violent. Unless Robin Clutter was put behind bars for a very long time, every single woman in society was at risk. He was a serial, intimate partner murderer. The prosecution team knew that getting a conviction in this case would not be difficult, but the challenge would be disputing any mental health mitigation his defence attempted and ensuring that in the judgments he was recognised as the dangerous serial offender he was. To do this, prosecutors turned to the investigative psychology unit of the SAPS. Dr Gerard Labaskachny and his team had significant experience in investigating and classifying serial offenders. But Robin Clutter was a serial murderer that didn't quite fit the popular theory of what a serial killer is. And in order to prove that he was just as dangerous as the Moses Sotoles of the world, they would need to break down his behavior, modus operandi, and his crimes to the very basic elements. In an academic paper Dr. Labaskachny penned with his colleague, Dr. Gabrielle Salfati, called An Examination of Serial Homicide in South Africa, the authors examined Klutz's case. The first elements of these crimes that needed to be addressed was the fact that Robin had not murdered strangers. The vast majority of serial murderers do kill strangers, but as would be pointed out in Robin's trial, as well as in the paper I mentioned, the accepted definition of serial murder does not specify what the relationship between the murderer and the victim should be. The second and third factors that needed to be addressed were the geographical locations of the crimes 
as well as the long period of time between murders. Marilyn Jones was killed in Cape Town in 1993. Shannon and Agatha Vipinar were killed 500 kilometres away in Concordia in 2007. Again, the accepted definition of a serial murderer does not include elements of time or location. These elements have crept into the public and media's own definitions of serial murder because of what we see with a vast majority of serial murderers and also the impression that's created by television programs. The accepted definition of serial murder for criminology and the legal community is simply killing at least two people and on at least two separate occasions, and that the homicides were not primarily for financial gain nor to eliminate a witness in another case. And the paper in question also points out that there are many other South African serial murderers who also killed victims that were known to them. These include Stuart Wilkin, who counted among his victims his girlfriend's son and his own daughter, and Richmond Makwenkwe, who killed his girlfriend and a friend of hers. Dr. Labuskakni points out that when looking at geography and timing of serial offences, that needs to be done in the context of the offender's own life experiences and lifestyle. There have been several other cases in which a serial offender has committed crimes, including rape and murder, been incarcerated, and upon release, simply continued with their series of crimes. Robin Clitter was certainly not the first to do this, and the geography issue was pertinent to where the offender was released and where they found work. Other aspects of the popular idea of what a serial killer is include that we believe the offender will always take precautions to avoid getting caught, and that they will always use the same method of killing, which we think plays out in their fantasy. Again, this is not always true, and is certainly not a legal requirement for the classification of a serial offender. Robin Clitter was charged with two incidents of assault, one on Shannon three weeks before the murder and one on one of her family members on the day of the murder, when he first arrived at Agatha's house. He was also charged with two counts of murder and two counts of malicious damage to property. Robin pleaded not guilty to all charges, and instead of relying on a dissociation defence this time, he claimed he'd been acting in self-defence. He said that Shannon and Agatha had attacked him first, and he was only defending himself. This, of course, was disputed by the neighbour whose house the incident had occurred in, who said that Agatha had been on the floor and not attacking Robin when she was stabbed, and that Shannon had been attempting to hide and then flee when she was attacked. The fact that Robin had chased after Shannon as she fled into the taxi also proved that he was not acting in self-defense. In 2008, Robin Clutter was found guilty of all charges against him. The judge accepted the evidence presented that classified him as a serial murderer. He was handed down 18 months for assault, 
three months for the other assault, six months for malicious damage to property, as well as a further 12 months for the second charge of malicious damage to property. But most importantly, he was handed down two life sentences for the murders of Shannon and Agatha Vipinar. Robin, though, was not prepared to settle for this. In 2009, he brought an appeal against his sentence. In it, he claimed that because his crime was not proven to be premeditated, and because the judge had not referred to the Minimum Sentencing Act in his judgment, his sentences were far too harsh in his view, and he should only have been handed down 20 years' imprisonment for these crimes. This appeal process would become deeply mired in delays. Eventually, it was discovered that the original trial records had been lost, and as a result, this appeal would only come before the courts 11 years later, in 2020. At this time, the appeal judge determined that the facts of the case did prove premeditation in that Klutzer had gone back to his house to fetch a knife, and the judge also said that the original trial judge's ruling automatically fell under the auspices of the Minimum Sentence Act, whether or not the judge had specified it. The appeal was dismissed, and Clutter continues to serve his life sentences. There are so many elements of what Robin Clutter did to these three women that warrants deeper inquiry. He is perhaps a combination of what all women fear most, a serial murderer and a partner who has no regard for your humanity and sees you as nothing more than an object he owns. When both Marilyn and Shannon decided that they were no longer going to accept Robin's controlling and abusive behavior, he refused to accept that they had the right to do so. To Robin, both women belonged to him. If he could not have them, no one would. His claims of being put under significant pressure by his victims, and this leading to their murders, just proves that he takes no accountability for his own actions, and this is why it was so vital to have him classified as a serial murderer. Because the truth is that one day, Plutter will be eligible for parole. And at that time, it will be hugely important for a parole board to understand this prior behavior. This is not an offender whose risk level can be determined solely on the basis of his behavior in prison or how many courses he's taken. If he is released and gets back into a relationship with a new woman, there is a terrifyingly high likelihood that she will not survive it. That is his modus operandi. He may not act like the serial killers we see on television, but he is one nonetheless. Marilyn Jones was really just a child when she met Robin, but she quickly realized that he was not a good fit for her as a partner. She had a bright future ahead of her, and all she wanted to do was get on with her life. But Robin Clutter could not have that. As far as he was concerned, 
Marilyn did not deserve a life without him in it. Shannon Vipinar had her own struggles, as we all do. And honestly, I think Robin preyed on her because of that. He was an ex-con, a man with a checkered past. And when he met Shannon, he realized that here was someone whose vulnerabilities would serve him. Agatha was desperately trying to protect her daughter when her life was taken. She likely died hoping that her daughter had used the opportunity to run, that perhaps her death would be enough to send this man away for life and protect Shannon and her granddaughter. But this was not to be. No one really believes they'll ever be the victim of a serial murderer. And the stats show that you probably won't be. It's actually very rare. What is not rare, though, is domestic violence, coercive control, and intimate partner murder. And perhaps we aren't nearly concerned enough about that happening to us. And when circumstances shift in just the wrong direction, and these two elements of crime pathology combine, the devastation left in its wake is unfathomable. There is a very fine line between someone who is capable of beating their partner and someone who is capable of killing them. In fact, I don't think there is a line. If someone is able to lift their hand and strike you, push you, pinch you, or even if they show you that they don't respect your boundaries in some other way, they're capable of almost anything. The gap between a mean word, a push, a punch, and a knife plunged into your body is minuscule and easily traversed under the wrong conditions. And serial murderers are not monsters hiding in the shadows waiting to pounce on strangers. They could very well be the person sitting next to you. Marilyn Jones, Shannon Vipinar, and Agatha Vipinar, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 96, The Serial Crimes of Robin Klitter. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then... Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.